Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I am so excited about this week's guest. She's one of my favorite people. No, she is not a celebrity. No, she is not a cookbook author. She is my sister-in-law, Kristen Johnson. She's the sister of my husband, Craig Johnson. And she is living, she lives in Bellingham, Washington, where Craig is from. And she's currently studying to be a therapist. And we were talking the other day and she said that she'd like to come on my podcast someday. And I said, well, there's no time like the present. So she is my guest this week and we have a great conversation. We talk about the time that she almost killed a chicken. And then what you do is you just grab the head and you take a sharp knife and... We talk about whether or not she's ashamed of her second dinner habit. I am not ashamed of my second dinner habit. And we talk about catching and eating Dungeness crabs in the San Juan Islands. That really is like one of the best meals I think I've ever had and that you can have because you're so it's so immediate. You just you go from creature and you pull it out of the sea and you boil it and eat it and it needs nothing. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Kristen Johnson, my sister-in-law. All right, sister-in-law, Kristen, are you ready for your lunch therapy? Yes, I'm excited. I'm excited to get to talk to you for an hour. I know, this is a good excuse to catch up. I know, and I'm also a lunch therapy fan. You're one of the very few and I appreciate that. I just did a poll on um, my Instagram asking people, you know, just for some feedback on lunch therapy. And I was like, do you like lunch therapy? And like 83% were like, yes. But then like some people were like, no, but you can see who says no. And now I'm furious at those fans of mine. I wondered about that. I just saw that poll. Yeah, I guess that's my own psychological issue that I set myself up for such punishment. (laughs) Well, at least you got 83% positive, right? Yeah. And I kind of did it to sort of make sure I was engaging with my Instagram following about it, because sometimes it feels like I'm podcasting out into the ether and I wanted to make sure everyone felt like they were part of it. Gotcha. Well, so Kristen, there are various reasons why you're on today. Number one, you asked to come on, (laughs) which I want to hear more about. And number two, you are studying to be a therapist yourself. So I guess my first question, let's start with number one. Like, why did you want to come on lunch therapy? Oh my gosh. Let's see. Why did I want to come on lunch? You know what? That's a really good question. Um... (laughs) You want us to come back to that question later? Maybe I wanted to talk about myself for an hour. Yeah, that's a good answer. I believe that. Which is unlike me. That's not... That's not typical. That's not typical me. Not at all. No. I mean, well, you're a funny combination of someone who, I mean, I've known you for 15 years and you're, I, from my perspective, you're somebody who sometimes really enjoys being the center of attention and other times wants nothing more than your own privacy. So <laughs> I feel, kind of feel like you run hot and cold when it comes to being in the spotlight. Yeah. You know, I like to be in the spotlight when I'm in comfortable quarters like with family and friends like close family and friends but in other situations like a public podcast Mm -hmm. definitely not um that that makes sense well I feel like also you you have such a creative side and the world doesn't often get to see it so this is a good opportunity (laughs) for people to get to know you better do you know what this reminds me of actually what it reminds me of when I took an improv comedy class. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is this is kind of connected to that. I feel like the way I try to run this podcast is I, I mean, not to be cheesy about the whole improv of it all, but I do kind of yes end the conversation so that we always kind of go wherever the conversation takes us as opposed to like forcing a conversation along. Right. Well, that's an excellent way to do it. And that's an excellent skill as an interviewer. I think that's an excellent way to be an interviewer. That's not true. Just kidding. Um, So Kristen, the other part of this, before we get to your actual lunch therapy, is that you're studying to be a therapist. So I guess my question about that would be how much of your study in school is related to lunch therapy, the podcast? (laughs) Um, I don't know if very much is related to lunch therapy, the podcast. Oh, you mean, wait, are you asking me how much is lunch therapy like real therapy? No, I'm asking like what part of your curriculum is listening to lunch therapy in school? Oh, well, that's an easy answer. That would be self-care, which is (laughs) a crucial part of any 
train to be a therapist program. So are you, um, I mean, so somebody, as somebody who listens to this podcast and who's studying to be a therapist, do you feel like there are actual moments that you've heard on this podcast that feel like real therapy or do you feel like the public nature of it makes it impossible to be real therapy? Yeah, you know, it could never, I mean, obviously it could never be real therapy and um, because, you know, it's a one-time thing and um, you're not really, you don't really have an ongoing relationship with the person, but um, I think you ask really interesting questions and I love the lunch therapy format and I love how you can delve into people's backgrounds and psyches all be a lunch. Yeah, it is really, you know, it's funny because it's like sometimes I get I get insecure about my own podcast. I'm like, maybe this premise isn't so great. Maybe I should have done a podcast about something like somebody just messaged me. They're like, you should do one about people's last meals if they were on death row. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not a bad idea. But you know, but I then I listened to these back and I'm like, wow, I learned so much about that person. And all I really asked was like, what did you have for lunch? Yeah. And that's a question, that's the kind of question that like, I really want to hear. Like you've had some of my very favorite comedians like you've of all time on here. And of course it's like, I want to hear what Cola Scola had for lunch and what Kate Berlant had for lunch. And Were you surprised by anything you learned from their interviews? Um, I can't think of anything off the moment, but I, do you know whose lunch I remember? Who? The most and who is my favorite lunch of all time on any episode is Kyle Buchanan's lunch. Oh yeah, the gas station. <laughs> Do you remember we, what it was? Was it a beef jerky and like <laughs> it was like beef jerky Doritos? Beef jerky and um, Starburst fave reds. Well, we try not to judge here at lunch therapy, so it was a, a very interesting window into his psyche. No, that and that honestly, I'm like that lunch is awesome, and every time I go to the gas station and buy Starburst. I think of Kyle Buchanan. <laughs> well, he's our neighbor too. So we sometimes see him at the gas station on his way to lunch. Buying favorites. Yes, exactly. Um, well, before we get to your lunch therapy, can you talk a little bit about your pandemic experience and how you cooked for yourself and um, what food journey you went on over the past year? Oh man. Okay. Let's see. I had quite a pandemic journey um, because I separated physically from my boyfriend from the, for the first part of the pandemic. So I was living on my own for a little bit of time right in the beginning. This all happened like right in the beginning of the pandemic. And so I was in kind of a series of little apartments and um, wasn't concentrating on food too much during that time really. Um, but now I'm back we're back in the same house. And um, so I guess the journey was like solo cooking to non-solo cooking. And how would you describe the difference between solo cooking and non-solo cooking? Um, non-solo cooking is definitely different because there's people other than you that are waiting to be fed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, yeah. so, so I have the primary cooking duties in our relationship because um, I have the most free time right now. And um, I like to do it. So I'm in charge of dinners pretty much. And you're, and I've seen you in action. It's, it's interesting. Like when you make up your mind to make a dinner, like you go for it. Like, I, I mean, I remember you did a Thanksgiving once. I didn't go to that one, but you did like a <laughs> huge meal and everybody was commenting on like how much you did. And then I've been to your, your place or Dean's place for Christmas and there's prime rib. It's just like, it almost feels like when you decide to do it, like you really do it. Yeah. Um, I really like to host people and that's something that I've done a lot more of since I've been together with Dean because um, he's pretty social and mm -hmm. we have a good house for entertaining so he likes to have large groups over and so like whether it's the family for Thanksgiving um, sometimes he'll just throw together like a party and it'll be and I'll think there's like six people coming and it's like oh there's 10 people coming and um, that really is a skill that takes a little bit of time as I'm sure you know to kind of get used to but I think I've sort of like I know all the fundamentals now and so mm -hmm. I actually know how to make it a good experience for me and like and my guests and so um I like to do that well I also think of you I was just remembering like two separate memories of, of you cooking for me and both were sort of like challenges or sort of like you proving something one of them oh. was proving that you can make delicious pizza at home um, and do you remember like you had a pizza stone and we went to 
Eliza Island, which is where Craig and Kristen's family has a little cabin with not a lot of electricity, but you made these incredible pizzas without any like room in the kitchen or anything. And you just did it. And then the other time was when I said, uh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts are boring. And you proved to me they weren't by making, was it chicken marsala or chicken? It was chicken piccata. Chicken piccata. So I feel yeah. like you enjoy a challenge. I do. I do. Um, was that pizza thing? Did you, had you said that you really can't make, I don't think you'd ever said you can't make good pizza at home. Did you? I think I did. No, I think that's what you were proving. You were like, Adam, cause I got you a pizza stone, I think for Christmas one year oh. and you're like, you just need a pizza. stone. That, and yeah. Do you remember when I made, that was when I made an appearance on your blog, I think. Uh huh. Because like there was, it was about char. It was the great char. Content. That was a different time. That was when we took you to Joe's as I think it's, no, John's Pizza on Bleecker Street, yeah. and you didn't like it. It was a coal oven pizza because it had too much char on it. Yeah, we could get all down, you know, we could really go off on a char tangent, but I don't know. I don't know oh. if we should. Well, we're about to find out about your lunch, so we can't go too much on a tangent. <laughs> but um, I'm saying, like, I feel like your cooking, like when you decide to cook, is often, like, you're often, like, proving something or like competing against yourself it almost seems like uh, yeah I would say well yeah I would say that's true and like I, I like to do things and especially Dean would say this because our cooking styles are different um if I'm gonna make like chicken piccata like I want to try to make it like the right kind of chicken piccata you know mm -hmm. and so I might look at a bunch of recipes or um yeah I definitely want to cook something that I'm cooking like like the best way that it can be. That's true. Which of course I, you know, don't achieve always, but. <laughs> no, you do. You're a great cook. And I think it's, I think the other thing that you do that I admire is you try to make it look easy. Like you never say, oh, that was so much work. You just sort of do it and then present it and then clean up. Well, that's don't... the magic yeah. secret to cooking for people. Yeah. Right? yeah. Trying to make it look easy. Yeah, you got to yeah. make it look easy. Like, I think that's the most important thing about dinner parties is like, mm -hmm. you got to have a good time. And the one little tip that they say about cook everything ahead of time is so true. Yeah, I'm doing dinner tonight for six people, including myself. And so I made a tiramisu last night that's already in the refrigerator. And I'm doing braised sausages with like tomatoes. So I'll do that ahead and just leave it on the stove. And then I'm just doing like a little salad, which I could do when everyone gets here. So yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, we've stalled long enough. So Kristen Johnson, what did you have for lunch today? I love it. It's the faint. Okay. I had a taco. Okay. <laughs> Do you care to elaborate? I had a crunchy beef taco that was left over from cooking Julie Johnson. My Your mother, mother. Craig's mother it was her birthday yesterday. So we had my mom and dad over and I did, uh, let's see, we had my mom and dad and then our other brother, Eric and me and Dean and Chloe. So I think that was six people. Chloe is Dean's daughter. Yes. Chloe is Dean's daughter. And, um, I made tacos, two kinds of tacos, fish tacos and crunchy beef tacos. So what I had for lunch was a leftover beef taco. Okay, lots of questions, lots to think about here. So, I mean, right, let's go straight to the core of it because this is very Oedipal okay. because it was your mother's birthday yes. and you served beef and fish tacos. Yes. And my first question is, was that something that your mother, Julie, who's my mother-in-law requested or was it something that you just chose to make for her? It was, actually, she did request a taco bar um, <laughs> because I texted her and said, what do you want to eat for your birthday? And we recently in the Northwest had a major heat wave, like record setting yeah. 100 degrees. So it was kind of in the midst of this. And she texted back and was like, something that's not going to heat up your kitchen, like a taco bar. And I was like, that's an excellent idea. So did you, as a bar, did you put everything out on a buffet? I put it all out. Yeah, it was a small enough group that we were all around the table, but I put everything on the table, all the condiments and um, fish tacos is something that I didn't used to make ever before I met Dean, but he and his daughters like it and they eat it a lot. And so I'm pretty good at fish tacos. So it was- What kind of fish do you put in the fish tacos? I do cod mm -hmm. and I marinate it in a little garlic, lemon juice and olive oil and mm -hmm. then grill it. And I make a fish. We have to talk about my fish taco sauce because yeah, please. it's 
one thing that I'm pretty proud of because it's one of those things that I can whip out. Like I've become a good enough cook that I can do a handful of sauces and stuff like, you know, off the top of my head. Which, so like, what's the fish taco sauce? The fish taco sauce is sour cream, mayonnaise, garlic. Uh, it's pretty basic, but lime juice, lime zest, uh, and a little cumin and that kind of thing, coriander. So with your fish taco sauce, are you um, winging it or are you following a recipe? No, I'm winging it. I'm winging it. Okay. So these are your signature fish tacos. Yes, pretty much. And then you did the crunchy shell for the fish tacos? Nope. Nope. They had a soft corn tortilla, soft corn tortilla. Uh Uh-huh. And did you grill those or heat those up too? Uh, yep. Just heat them up a little bit in the microwave. But then with the beef tacos, you did crunchy shells. Crunchy shells, yeah. And what what goes in the beef? The beef gets um, tomato paste and cumin and chili powder, garlic powder, onion powder, salt, uh, chili flakes, a little water. Water. Yeah. Yeah, so you gotta you brown your beef and then you throw your spices in there and then you cook up your tomato paste a little bit and then you simmer it in water. Well, so I'm curious, and we're gonna go more into your lunch and your psychology, but for some reason the fact that you cook this meal for your mother and for your parents like feels significant somehow. And I feel like I want to ask you, what is what is it like for you to cook for your parents and how has that changed over the years? I really like to cook for my parents um, because they are such good cooks, you know, as you know, especially my dad. Um, And yeah, I like to return the favor, I think. But do you worry about them not liking what you cook? Is there any sense of like trying to please them or impress them? Is there a sense of just showing them that you're it's just like a gesture. I mean, how do you think about yeah. it psychologically? I would say that they, they are close enough that they're, cl- I mean, we're, we're close enough, like in our relationship and they also live physically close that mm-hmm. it's not too big a deal for them to come over. Um, although I will say that I do like to, I do feel a little bit of pressure in terms of like, I want it to be nice and mm-hmm. I want like, and I get this, this comes definitely from my mom um the idea that whenever you're hosting like you want to make that effort for for it to be clean and things Mm -hmm. to kind of be ready and things to be set up and um yeah but I've done it enough and I've done hosting enough that it doesn't stress me out at all really well you're it's funny yeah because your mom it's almost like cooking is about the gesture itself it's like opening your home and like letting people in and it's about making them feel comfortable and making them feel welcome and you know yeah. making the house clean but for your dad it seems like it's about the food like he's so focused on the food and he's so hard on himself about getting it right so it yeah. feels like you're probably somewhere in the middle I would imagine yeah I mean I think you got it exactly right like that's the different sides that each of my parents have and that definitely influenced me in both ways and Mm -hmm. I really am glad that my mom set that example for me like in terms of hosting I was talking about this with my friend Jill the other day and um say she was saying how she likes to get ready for a party it's like her favorite part and she'll do it like three days ahead Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some, some people give her flack for that, but we were saying like, we think it's just a way to show that you care about the person, you mm-hmm. know, when your house is clean, it shows that like, it's an important event. And well, I'm struggling with that a little bit. Cause I have this new friend, Felicia, who listens to this podcast. She might be listening right now. And she's, she's coming over tonight. So she's sort of like wants to help and she wants to be in the kitchen. And it's sort of like, no, 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 no. Like come at seven 30, everything will be done and just come. But there is something about that need to plan and that need for perfection, which feels like my, my own character issue. Like, Mm -hmm. like I need to let go of that and maybe sort of be more loose and be more casual and not need for things to be perfect, but make make people feel more welcome and part of things. I don't know, but maybe that's okay. Maybe it's just who I am. You know, Dean uh, is, has been that kind of an influence on me because that's more his style is Mm -hmm. loose and casual and like, for him and his side of the family, like, it's no big deal if like the number of people coming is like 
changes from four to six or to eight you know Mm -hmm. it's like no big deal you just do whatever you accommodate but on but from my side of the family like you know we need to know like how many people are going to be there and Dean's really good about just looking in the fridge and kind of throwing things together and and just kind of barging in with a recipe like going for it even if you don't even have all the ingredients where I'm like more like what you just described where it's Mm -hmm. like I can't make chicken piccata like I don't have this and this and so yeah, I think somewhere in the middle. I think it's a it's good for us. It's it's good for me to be pulled in that direction, and it probably would be good for you too. What's um, the psychological like term? For, I mean, how would you describe somebody psychologically who like, needs to plan everything and have everything just so versus somebody who doesn't? Is it like an anal personality, or is that old fashioned to use that term? Hmm. Well, a- a- anal's a Freudian thing. Yeah, um, it's a, maybe a little bit old fashioned. Um, what would be the term for that? I don't know. Lucy goosey. No, <laughs> the opposite of Lucy goosey. Yeah, high strung, anxious. Uh, the thing that popped into my head was the um, oh, what is it called? The Myers Briggs. Probably mm-hmm. one of the Myers Briggs things would 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 explain yeah. more about that. So okay, so let's go to your lunch. So you had this leftover beef taco, and was it stuffed already with beef, or did you stuff it today? Mm, I stuffed it today. I had all the components um, um, saved separately and I microwaved the beef and I heated up the taco shell, the corn taco shell in the toaster oven. Mm-hmm. And then I put um, bottled taco sauce on it and cheddar cheese and pickled onions that I had left over and lettuce. Wow. So was this a big lunch for you or is this a typical lunch for you? Um, This was... This was maybe, maybe it was big. It wasn't big because I didn't eat a lot, but I had eaten breakfast like not long before. But then I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> eat something for lunch. And ah. there, it definitely had a lunch therapy influence on it. Cause I might've just made like, I don't know. I was going to make a quesadilla, but I don't know. Then I was like, oh yeah, I've got all that taco stuff. So anyway it definitely had some lunch therapy had some influence on what I chose ultimately. And what, what's the difference between eating, making a quesadilla for yourself and making, eating the leftover taco? Like how, how was it about how it represented you? Um, a little bit. I thought that that would be, there would be more to talk about. Like when I, if I do a quesadilla, it's just stri- straight cheese and flour tortilla in a pan with butter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the leftover taco I felt would be a better conversation piece because then we could talk Mm. about the party the night before and all that kind of thing. Well, that feels like that's a key element to this though. Cause I often ask my guests, like, did you eat your lunch because it's what you would normally eat or did you eat it because you knew you were coming on the podcast? And I feel like there's something in that, that reveals something. Uh, and And for you, it's almost like people pleasing, I wonder, or like, trying to do what's expected of you or not to disappoint if that definitely that's right is oh, that, yeah. oh, has that always been true of you because I feel like you have that side but I feel like you have a completely other side that I've witnessed where you don't you know you just do what you want like where you're not concerned about people pleasing you know so I'm curious that's my about- ideal self ah tell me <laughs> more um no I'm definitely a people pleaser 100 and in fact I think I hope that's not gonna affect me doing therapy or I suspect it may be something that I have to work to overcome because mm-hmm. um, your job when you're a therapist, you're definitely not there to always make your client feel comfortable or to give, you know, to give them what they expect or what they want or mm-hmm. what, yeah. So, but yes, I certainly am a people pleaser and I certainly like want to do something the best that it could be. So it was like, what would be the best lunch? So yeah, I thought like, what would be the best lunch that I could have? Well, it's also interesting because we we talked earlier about like cooking for yourself versus cooking for Dean and other people. And like, I wonder, it it begs the question, so to speak, uh, when you were by yourself and there were no people to please what kind of meal, I mean, we asked you earlier what kind of meals you made for yourself, but like, mm. what is it like when you're not trying to please other people and you're only trying to please yourself? What kind of food do you make? Oh my gosh, probably like, I mean, I definitely have a side that will go to McDonald's and, mm-hmm. or like eat um, frozen. I didn't have like much kitchen stuff with me or like in apartments. It was basically like people's mother-in-law apartments, like friends of friends that I mm-hmm. stayed in. Um, 
So that would have been like, I'm trying to think if I ever even did cook in one of those. And I can't remember. I don't, if I did, it probably was like buying like an Italian sausage and heating it up in a pan with some jarred spaghetti sauce. Well, it's funny because Craig is in New York right now directing an episode of Gossip Girl um, and I'm a home alone and I relate to you. I think we're very similar in that we're almost, we almost need somebody to cook for. Like we thrive in that nurturer role, but like when we're alone, it's like, it's hard to justify putting that same effort in. Like for me, like I needed to invite people over to make sure I kept cooking <laughs> like I have to test recipes for this cookbook I'm doing mm-hmm. um so like I needed to just do that like with for other people I, I could not have done that just for myself um and so I feel like with you it's similar it's like when when you when you're cooking for other people that's when you come to life in the kitchen yeah definitely definitely I don't think I ever really got much joy out of just cooking for myself and I mm-hmm. lived alone for a long time well, I lived alone or I lived with Eric, my other brother, mm-hmm. but that kind of cooking. And actually that was nice. Like it always was nice to have um, somebody to cook for because it, it creates like a rhythm to your day, you know, and especially like in the times that I would go through like tough, tough times with my mental health, like mm-hmm at least having Eric there because I was responsible for cooking for him like you still have to make dinner like you can't just like lie on the floor all day and like Mm -hmm. eat nothing or eat you know eat cereal well we should make sure people who are listening so Eric um has autism and and so you were living with him as sort of his caretaker right yes yes I've been Eric's caregiver for quite a few years and I lived with him for eight years I think Mm -hmm. almost eight years no Let's see, 2008 to like 2017. So yeah, eight to nine years. And just, I mean, I know this story, but like from, for people who don't know, how would you describe that experience of going from, because I, I knew you lived in Seattle. Actually, when I met you, I think you were a waitress, which is a whole other conversation we can have. Right. Um, but then you decided to move back from Seattle to Bellingham, where your family lives, and you moved in with Eric uh, to take care of him or to be his caretaker. Mm-hmm. And and from my observation, like you not only did a great job, but I just saw how Eric kind of came to life and it was really kind of cool to see you stepping into that role. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like what that was like for you to suddenly be in this position where you had to feed him and take care of him and coming from just taking care of yourself. Well, I took that job for totally selfish reasons and it was a really, really hard decision. Um, But I, the reason why I took it was because I was going to get this sweet new place that my parents had helped Eric buy. And it was like a new construction townhouse in like the most ideal neighborhood in Bellingham. And part of the compensation for being his caregiver is you get to live rent free. Plus the caregiving job had like health benefits and I wanted to finish my undergrad degree. So it was like an ideal situation. I thought for me personally, but then Mm -hmm yeah, that aspect of going back and playing that role in my family, you know, it was really hard to like pull the plug and do it. And and I never once was like, oh, I should do, you know, do this because it would be a nice thing to do mm. for Eric, you know, but it turned out that way. Like it turned out to be really good for him. Like you said, thank you. And uh, really rewarding for me to be able to get to know him so well as an adult and get to see his world and like, how it could be improved and how things could be made easier for him. Well, it's funny that you describe it as sort of a selfish act in a weird way, because I don't think anybody else would see it that way. But, <laughs> but, but I also know that you're a very ethically minded person. And actually, I just remembered when we got into a huge debate once about vegetarianism and you almost made me cry. Uh, <laughs> I was just wondering if we were going to bring up the epic meat debate. Oh, my God. Well, you are relentless. That's the other thing. People are only seeing your sweet side right now. <laughs> They're not seeing this terrifying, relentless arguer, which you, you can be. I mean, when you decide to argue about something, oh my God, watch out because you will double down and. Well, but don't I do it in like a very, like, I'm like an argue, arguer ninja, right? Cause I don't yeah. get emotional. Like my, like, well, I don't get emotional and I don't, I can stay calm, but you know what that all comes from? It comes from my, my undergrad degree in philosophy. Right. Like they really train you. You get trained to think a certain way and to be able to like 
very like coldly see like both sides of an argument or maybe not coldly but like you know you have some perspective and well I think that what you were saying then which is actually probably what I believe now is that it's not ethically justifiable to eat meat but I choose to like just do it anyway like I think that's what you said and I was like no but it is just I was trying to make all these arguments for why it was ethical like for the you know the fact that like you know all these God, I can't even remember what I said at the time, but maybe I would say now that the world is a brutal place and there's all kinds of horrible things that happen and this is part of the system. And I guess that's moral relativism. So you picked me apart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it was about, it was about eating like meat the way it's many or not many, you know, where it's prepared today, like factory farm meat, basically. And and it wasn't about meat in general, because it wasn't an argument about like, you know, of course, many make, you know, that argument that humans shouldn't eat any animals at all, but it was about like, given the way that factory farmed meat is, comes to the table, it's not, yeah, anyway. Well, it's been actually a funny, funny thing that's related to where you are right now, which is that lately, it feels like places that are renowned for selling humane meat and like ethical <laughs> animals are getting exposed for like in LA, we have this a butcher called Del Campo, which was just exposed to selling like USDA beef, like off a truck, but marking it up like $50 and saying it was humanely raised. But then there in Bellingham or in Orcas Island is, um, which we call it the Willows Inn, mm-hmm. which was just revealed as like he claimed that everything was caught locally, and then it was like from Costco. Right. So, so it's just sort of like it kind of makes me think about like how do you even? I mean, I guess is it ethical? Just if you if you think you're buying ethical meat and you buy it and you eat it, and then it turns out that it wasn't ethically raised meat or humanely raised, are you ethically in the wrong? Right. Well, I don't think you are because you were doing it in good faith and you were just provided with um, faulty, faulty information. Mm-hmm. But okay. I think it's an, it's an interesting thing, this whole phenomenon of people really, the way it makes people feel to, to buy like meat like that and food. I don't know. Food is such an interesting thing. So it's like, anyway, we, I could, we could no, go well, off keep going. That. I want to hear what you're going to say. Well, I was going to say like, um, you know, it's such a crazy world right now. And I think that food decisions are so immediate in people's life. And it's something that they can feel like they have control over. Mm-hmm. And there's all these impossible problems that are so overwhelming, but people, so I think people can really gravitate to um, this idea that they're, they're so careful about like what they eat and what, what they put in their bodies. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think it can go a little bit they can go a little bit too far or too stringent. Not, and this is not to say like you shouldn't, of course you absolutely should eat ethical meat. And um, I don't know, that just made me think of that. No, I get your point completely. And it's funny cause like, it feels like people tie their identities to how they eat and where they eat. And I was just thinking about Chick-fil-A because to me it's grotesque that people would eat there knowing that they give money to like anti-gay organizations. Mm-hmm. And yet Craig and I go to In-N-Out Burger which like has Bible verses on the bottle of like the soda cups and God knows who they donate to. It's like, it's just sort of arbitrary, like which, you know, things we like decide, like, that's not me. I would never go to Chick-fil-A, yeah. but I would go to In-N-Out Burger. You know, what does that even mean? Like, how do, how do you know? And, you know, right. Well, that, that's a really good point. Cause it just shows that everything isn't as black and white as people, when they become very stringent about it, hope mm-hmm. that it is and want it to be that way because it's like something you can hang your hat on. But, but yeah, but like with In-N-Out, that's a great example because sure they may have Bible verses on their cups, but they're also a really good company in terms of how they treat their employees. Mm-hmm. They, they pay them really well and they help pay for schooling and there's great opportunities for advancement. Like their managers make like, I think over a hundred thousand dollars at in and out. Well, it also makes, makes me think of like what, what else is going on in the food real, world right now, not to get too much into this, but like the whole Alison Roman thing. I don't know if you followed that saga of no. her. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Well, Alice we go. Roman? No, I don't think I know that one. Oh, okay. I'll, we'll talk about that later. Because basically, she's like a huge food writer who got brought down because she said something mean about Chrissy Teigen. And then like they deemed it racist because she called out Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo, who are both women of color. And they're like, why did this white woman call out these two women? Oh, and she, she lost her gig at the New York Times. She got um, canceled. Yeah, she got canceled. And so now it's like almost verboten, verboten to like, 
Coco and Allison Roman recipe or like link to one of her posts. And it's sort of like, wow, it's like so absolutist. It's like what we were just saying about like In-N-Out Burger and Chick-fil-A and that's like, things are so much more complicated than that. Right. And I really think that's like an example of people really like not knowing what to do with all of the terror of these horrible issues going on around us, like, you Mm -hmm. know, like climate change and, and really wanting to feel like they have some control. And so maybe going a little too far with, their need to ex- need to express their opinions like via their um yeah to, to kind of go off the deep end with how they with what they buy and what media they consume and what you know that makes a lot of sense i mean i feel like classically people who have eating disorders that's about control usually right that's about they want them to have they have control issues or i feel like i read that somewhere yeah, they, it, yeah it's often they often go hand in hand people with disordered eating often also goes along they have a lot of rituals and things mm-hmm. that go with their eating and um yeah but that makes sense in terms of what you were talking about in terms of like wanting control like linking mm-hmm. control to like what you put into your body and um, right yeah well we're not you're not off the hook yet we've we've diverted long enough from your psychological expose so the other thing that i was thinking as we were talking about your lunch and just you were talking about cooking in general is I think there's like a total lack of snobbery to your food. It's like, there's, you know, when you were talking about going to McDonald's and you talk about doing a taco bar, all this stuff, it just feels like it's important to you. There's something that's like the opposite of elitist, I guess. That's like, there's something very um, like universal or just like you're one of the people. <laughs> like, you, don't, you, don't, you don't hold yourself above. for all people. Right. But you don't hold yourself above other people because of what you know about food. Even though you happen to know a lot about food, it feels very important to you that, that, that you don't present yourself as being snobby in any way, if that's accurate. No. I mean, yeah, I think that the part of it is kind of the environment I live in, like food is not a big, like I don't live in a foodie city. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not really a scene at all. Uh, so mm, there's that maybe if I lived in, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of cooking, um, recipes that are exactly the same recipes that my mom cooked. And even Mm -hmm. like my grandma, like her mom before her, that's often almost my very, I think actually my favorite thing to cook is probably my mom's lasagna recipe. Mm-hmm. With cottage cheese? Yes. Cottage <laughs> cheese, no ricotta. Ricotta, mm-hmm. down with ricotta in lasagna, I say. That's a very uh, Midwestern hack, so to speak. I know. <laughs> And well, your mom, yeah, but I feel like, like that, oh, go yeah. ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, like, I feels like there's a utilitarianism to your mom's cooking where it's, you know, it's about getting food on the table and feeding mm-hmm. people. And it's a very like warm, meaningful gesture, but it's not about saying, you know, oh, I got this, these lasagna sheets from this Italian pasta maker who makes it all by hand with flour right. imported from Italy. And the ricotta yeah. came out of cows that were freshly milked this morning you know it's like that would never be what it's about and I feel like it's the same for you too yeah I mean I I I feel like yeah I'm easy to please like food wise um and so is Dean even more so like I'll cook Mm -hmm. stuff that I think is mediocre and be like this is great this is the this is the best which is fun I mean it's really fun to cook for somebody like that um but yeah uh, I think that's the, my next step in my cooking life is I do want to, um, I don't often cook, like seek out new recipes and cook with like cool ingredients. Like I want to try like, in, like, I don't know, cook Indian food with mm-hmm. special ingredients that I have to go and buy. Like, um, and now with or, the internet, like a, you hard, can get like anything. a hard recipe, you know? Yeah. I don't totally. do that so much because yeah, most of it is like trying to get stuff on on the table. Um, but then I like to do whatever it is like well, you know. And how do you handle it? Like when you cook for Dean and he doesn't like what you made, has that happened before? <laughs> um, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, I it, it, I think it just kind of works itself out like I made pod thai recently and mm-hmm. the noodles were totally hard and crunchy like they didn't <laughs> spend enough time getting cooked and so you know that was kind of a bummer because pod thai like there is a lot of steps to it and 
but you know we just threw some water in the bowl and then microwaved it until the noodles got softer and and how yeah. do you handle that do you freak out when stuff like that happens or are you pretty no. cool i might have i i'm i may have earlier but i don't anymore because mm-hmm. you really start to understand like it's just a meal and there's going to be another one and um it's not worth stressing about that's great yeah um, well, I was going to ask you, I mean, we, we alluded to this earlier about the char on pizza, but mm-hmm. I feel like you do have a lot of strong opinions about food and things that bug you and that, you know, certain, like even just now you were saying cottage cheese instead of ricotta. Uh, but like, I feel like I've seen you get worked up about food things. So I guess I, I'm curious, like, what are your biggest food pet peeves? Oh, well, the char. So the thing on with char on pizza that I always want to make it clear is like I understand char. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know it's supposed to be there. What the problem I had was we got pizza not from Joe's, but do you remember I got a takeout pizza and I lifted up the bottom of it and I showed the bottom and it was like all black. And I was like, <laughs> this is not like I feel like sometimes people take liberty with like the term char uh-huh. to have like you know, overdone pizza is like, right. oh, you, just, you don't understand char. But it's like, no, like I'll, cause I used to be a pizza cook. Oh yeah. And you can I'll toss the pizza the in the air. Yeah. Yeah. And if the crust on the bottom is uniformly like too dark, then that's just overcooked pizza. And sometimes it'll be gritty. Here's one of my pet peeves, pizza cooks who don't sweep their ovens enough. Mm, tell us more. If you ever have a slice of pizza and there's like little sandy gritty bits on it, that is the sign that the cooks aren't sweeping out their ovens like they should be a couple times during each shift. And where where did you work? Which pizza place did you work at? I worked at a big pizza chain that's local to the Seattle area called Pagliacci. And what did you have to do there? Were you a pizza cook or were you? A- yeah, you started out, I started out on the counter, um, just like cashiering. And mm-hmm. then I became a prep cook. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually, if you're interested in it, they graduate you to learning to toss the dough and make the pizza, which was w- super fun. That's one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. And you're good at it. Like you really get that dough high in the air. Yeah, I can toss a pizza dough. That's right. Once you, well, it's like riding a bike. Once you know, learn that skill, you never, never lose it. So they what, make you start with dish towels, wet dish towels. Oh, really? that's a good idea. Yeah. So what did, what, what, what other tips about making pizza did you learn when you worked at Pagliacci's? Um, really important tip is when you, so you know how you have your cutting board like thing with the handle, which is like the pizza launcher or something. The like, peel? Pizza the peel. peel. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, of course. Pizza, pizza launcher. Peel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't want it to stick to the peel. So right. you want to use a lot of speed when you're assembling your pizza on the peel. You want to make sure you have enough flour or cornmeal, whatever you're using. Um, and then before you go to, so before you go to launch it, which is what they call when you slide it off the peel into the oven, you want to shake it when you're, when it's on your counter still and make sure that it fully slides. Otherwise you're going to end up with a big pile of doughy. Mess. Well, I'm curious because you said people don't sweep their onions means you have crunchy stuff under the pizza. But when I've made pizza, I, I do put like cornmeal under the pizza so it slides into the oven. Mm. But is that different than what you're talking about? Like, I feel like the crunchy bits on the bottom of my pizza is just because I put that under there on purpose so that slides easily. Yeah, no, it's not cornmeal. It's like commercial pizza ovens will get like ashy, flaky stuff. It's mm-hmm. not quite gritty as much as it is as it is like ash and just okay. like dirty sand. Um, there's one local pizza place that I'm not going to name here in Bellingham that's notorious for not or that I notice every time I go there. Their pizza is still pretty decent, but every time I'm like, mm, not sweeping their ovens. And what do you? What is the best pizza you've ever had? Like, what's the the high watermark for pizza for you? Oh my gosh, the best pizza. <sighs> or, or would you say it's Pagliacci's? Because I feel like I've heard you say that before. That no, it's Pagliacci. It's definitely not like the best, but I really like it. I mm-hmm. enjoy it. Um, I ate it all the time when I worked there, and I often seek it out when I go. But it's it's like kind of comforting to me. And what's the what, what's your go to topping order for Pagliacci pizza? Um, the bet my favorite pizza at Pagliacci is a really simple pizza that just has olive oil base, um, no garlic, just olive oil, mozzarella, 
blue cheese and then you bake the pizza and then it gets fresh chunks of tomato when it comes out of the oven yeah yeah it's really good i feel like i should analyze people's pizza toppings in my next podcast you should because i feel like that pizza captures you in that there's the funk and surprise of the blue cheese but the purity of the tomatoes Mm -hmm. and especially if you have it would be it's like over the top good if you have really good tomatoes Mm. So is, is pizza the area you feel like you know the most about when it comes to cooking and food because of your time at Pagliacci's? Mm, yeah, probably. I mean, I guess because I worked as a cook, I know certain things about, yeah, I would say that's probably right. I know about things that the average home cook might not know. But you know what I haven't done is make pizza dough from scratch. Oh, and I've I was done that. For full disclosure, when I cooked pizza on Eliza, it was with dough that I probably bought a dough ball from a local pizza shop. I didn't, I never have, I've been too um, intimidated to make my own pizza dough. By the way, um, are you watching Top Chef this season? No. Well, they're in um, Portland, Oregon, and then they go to Cannon Beach. And the final challenge in the last episode was they had to catch Dungeness crabs and make a hot dish and a cold <gasps> dish using Dungeness crabs. And What's going? Is there a train going past you? Oh yeah, I live right by train tracks. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. I just want to make sure you're okay. Um, she's tied to the railroad tracks. If you can't see her right now, so if you hear screaming, that's what's happening. Um, no, no, but, but I was going to mention that your family, when they go to Eliza, famously catches Dungeness crab, boils it on the beach, and eats it right there on a log, and it's pretty extraordinary. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could share a few words about that. Oh man. That is like a good, it's like a godly food experience. It's like the prime, that really is like one of the best meals I think I've ever had and that you can have because you're so, it's so immediate. You just, you go from creature and you pull it out of the sea and you boil it and eat it and it needs nothing. Now your dad is the one who rose out and catches the crabs and he's often the one who like smacks the shells off of them or the the heads off of them and breaks them in half and puts them in the pot. But I feel like from my observation, neither you nor Craig have taken on the mantle of crab hunting. And I'm wondering if that's something you want to learn. I know and it's shameful too because our dad is, you know, he's getting up there. He's in his upper (laughs) seventies. He's listening to this right now. He's doing great. You know what? That is actually where Dean stepped into our lives in a timely manner um, because Dean is also crabbing and good at crabbing and has a boat. And so um, we can, we can make a seamless transition from Steve to Dean. Well, I'm curious for you though, because for me, psychologically, there is something unnerving about seeing a live gigantic crab crawling around the bottom of your boat and then lifting that up and knocking the head off. Like, I don't think I'll, I, I've done all kinds of things in the kitchen. I flambéed bananas before I've flattened a chicken, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've never killed a live crab. I have killed a live lobster, but not, but a crab, something about it is terrifying, but maybe that's something I need to work through. Yeah, I do too. I can do every step of the crabbing process. Like I'm willing to do it except for um, what they call like euphemistically cleaning, cleaning the crab, crab, (laughs) whacking its shell off in one, like on the side of the boat and, and then ripping it in half and dumping its guts off. I don't like to do that part because, well, that's when you're, you're killing the creature. Yeah. And that is really hard to do. And in fact, you just reminded me, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I once had a friend who had a chicken farm and they were doing a chicken slaughter and I wanted to go and help because I wanted to challenge myself. I felt that because I'm going to continue to eat meat, I should be able to actually kill a chicken yeah but when it when when it came down to it it was the final moment and you take the chicken and you put it upside down in a metal cone and its little <sighs> head is sticking out the cone and then what you do is you just grab the head and you take a sharp knife and slice the head off I wanted to try it and I got to it and I and I this is a horrible part like I started cutting the chicken like a little bit but I didn't do it with enough oh force. no and Kristen. then I freaked out I freaked out I was like I can't do it I can't finish it and someone had to step in quickly and sadly that little chicken had like a couple extra seconds of suffering but you know I could do all the other steps I could put the chicken in like this washing machine type device that whirls it around so its feathers come out but the actual killing of the animal that's a really hard thing to do. Isn't that interesting? I just watched the movie last night, Deliverance. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, yeah. 
And there's the scene where um, John Voight has the bow and arrow pointed towards the deer. And then he like starts shaking and he can't do it. And he completely misses the deer and it goes through a tree. Like, but you kind of see in that moment, like he seems so macho, but then all of a sudden, like when he's faced with this, uh, you know, moment where he's going to kill this deer, he can't do it. And I can't know, I can't speak for myself. I mean, I guess back to our vegetarianism debate, I do agree that like, if you do eat meat, you should be able to kill an animal. Like it doesn't, it seems hypocritical that we eat meat and then we're divorced from the act of killing it. Mm -hmm. So I think you and I need to go hunting on a reality TV show where we hunt (laughs) our own animals and then cook them for dinner. Naked and afraid. Yeah, I will be naked. Yeah, that, that won't be weird <laughs> at all. Um, well, Kristen, we're actually a time flew by. We're not done yet. We're, we're nearing the end. So before we get to the final question, which you may know, I want to make sure, do you feel like we covered the gamut of your food journey? Do you think we picked apart your lunch properly and it, we saw all the parallels to who you are? I think we did. Did we? we? Or can we go deeper? Well, how much time do you have? Want to make this a part one and part two lunch therapy session? No, no, sorry. Nobody gets that as much as I like you. Nobody no, wants that either. Well, maybe they do. I think people like to hear, you know, from family and people who are close to me because it's it's more interesting sometimes than like celebrities who are just very presentational and telling stories they want you to hear. <laughs> All right. Well, the final question in my podcast is always, what are you going to have for dinner tonight? Um, so I, I thought about this because I knew you were going to ask it as a lunch therapy fan. I know Mm. how it works. Um, but you know what? I don't know for sure. However, it's possible. I think it's going to be something easy because it was kind of a big production last night. So I have actually a credit at a pizza place because they gave me the wrong size of pizza. So Mm. we could have be having pizza in our future. And you're just going to pick up the pizza and like, like have it made for you. Yeah. And in your current family dynamic, do you all agree on toppings or do you each have your own topping on a different part of the pizza? I think we typically all agree most. It'll just be Dean and me and maybe Chloe. I'm not sure. Actually, she's not going to be here for dinner. So it'll be just Dean and me. And um, yeah. So we, what are the to- we, what are the toppings? We typically come to a consensus. Okay, but I'm, I want to know, like, what? Oh, you want to know the toppings? Yeah, what are the toppings? Oh, geez, they have specialty. So the place we're gonna we'd probably go is this place really close to our house called Pizzazza, mm-hmm. and they have you know the specialty pizzas, which they have like a Greek one that has feta cheese and kalamata olives and artichoke hearts and sun dried tomatoes. Um, or we might just get pepperoni mm. or we might get Canadian bacon and pineapple. And in your relationship, not to delve too deeply, but we do have nine minutes left. So I'm going to keep asking you questions. Um, <laughs> do you, who takes the lead on the pizza toppings? Is, or is it usually you like, I'm in the mood for um, pepperoni tonight. And will Dean be like, sure, that sounds fine. It, or I think probably me. It's usually me that takes the lead mm-hmm. and then gets, gets consensus, gets approval. Um, and in terms of like your daily meals, like today we learned about your taco, but we also learned that it might've been a quesadilla. Um, but, and you talked about breakfast. So are you a three meals a day kind of person, or do you often just eat like two meals a day? How much do you eat in a given day? I'm definitely not a three meal a day person just because I kind of wing it when it comes to meals. I'm definitely not a, a routine or schedule follower. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels and, important. This feels like we needed to get here. So tell well, us more. Thank God, we have eight minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds left. Not that we're counting, but I know I just want to make sure we use all this time well. Yeah. No, I I um I am anti-routine to a fault, I would say. It's not always a good thing, but I really bristle at like schedules and um I don't like to do the same thing every day at the same time. Mm-hmm. However, um, and I used to not really eat breakfast at all, but but I do now have a bit of a smoothie routine mm. because I discovered a smooth, a really easy to make um, thing that uses up old bananas, which I was really like really excited when I realized I could use old bananas this way because um, I hate throwing them out. And I just threw out bananas because we had fruit flies. Yeah, so. 
what I make is a super simple smoothie that tastes exactly like orange, an old school orange Julius. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have, do they have orange Juliuses in Florida? I think so. I've never, I've never had it, but I'm aware of it. Like I know the change. It's basically like an orangey, like vanilla-y drink. So what do you um, put in your so smoothie? My smoothie is just um, crushed ice and plain Greek yogurt and an, an oldish banana and maybe like a third of a cup of orange juice and vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. Blend it up. It's very basic, but I really like it. And so it gave me something to do in the mornings. And so now I'm more likely to start eating earlier in the day because I like to make that smoothie. Now, I, I seem to recall on your last visit that either Scarlett or Chloe, who are Dean's daughters. Are you drinking beer, by the way? No. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? It's iced tea. Oh, okay. I was like, wow, she's really going for it. Um, (laughs) They seem to say like Kristen eats a second dinner often. They seem to say they'll they'll find you at like midnight eating like macaroni and cheese, not to out you on the end of this podcast, but that's okay. I am, I am not ashamed of my second dinner habit. Well, where, where does that come from? Are you, does it come from hunger or does it come from ritual or like what's the motivation behind it? So if I'm left to my own devices, my go-to schedule would be get up late, like at 11, like go to bed really late, mm-hmm. get up late, not eat really until the middle, until like probably like one or two or 3 PM, which would essentially be breakfast. So then mm-hmm. that kind of shifts everything. So then dinner becomes like lunch and but I haven't had many calories by the end of the day so then you have second dinner (laughs) so you're like a hobbit at like 9 or 10 p.m yeah exactly well that's the other part of you we talked about you as a people pleaser but this other side to you like setting your own schedule like wanting to sleep late like eating at midnight or whatever like it feels like there's a huge independent streak within you too where it's you know you kind of march to the beat of your own drum and I wonder how that competes with your people pleasing side. Like, are they at war with one another or do you kind of keep the um, independent side separate? There's definitely, a, there's definitely kind of some battles that are fought on that front or like, uh, it's definitely like there's compromises and things because so like one good example is, um, Dean likes it when we go to bed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, the same way. Yes. You're the same way you like, you like you. And yeah. Some- I get so unnerved that like Craig will fall asleep on the couch and I'll be like, please just come to bed. Like I'm going to be laying there, like waiting for you to wake up and come to bed, just like get into the bed. And he doesn't understand that at all. He thinks I'm annoying him. <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. Well, and isn't it, and, and I think Dean feels the same way. And then he, I think he gets especially irritated when I not only don't come to bed, but I, then I then fall asleep on the couch. Cause it's yeah. like, you were so sleepy why didn't you just get into bed? But sometimes, I don't know, I should talk to my brother about this because sometimes it's just like, there's so much effort or it's like nighttime is the prime time to go down like internet rabbit holes or Mm -hmm. just to like, I get really deep in my head like late at night. And so I don't know. And it also just seems like it takes so much work, but yeah, but I can also see Dean's side of it and your side of it where it's like, come on, like you're gonna fall asleep on the couch. Now you're just adding like insult to injury. Um, well, what anyway. makes me think about like when you talked about my family as being a one creature with multiple heads and that your family was like four independent creatures is that oh, what you yeah. said? or five you independent creatures? Dean, yeah. You could characterize Dean's family and my family the, the same way. Like yeah. Dean's family would be like, there's, they're very much more, more merged and mm-hmm. um, yeah, like one, one uniform creature with yeah, just how you describe well, it. Well, I mean, for me, it's all about food because like my mom, you know, when I'm home, she'll be like, what are you having for lunch? What are you having for dinner? What did what, what you eat this morning? What did, and I'll do that to Craig. I'm like, what did you have for lunch? She'll be like, why do you want to know what I had for lunch? I'm like, well, first of all, it's the premise of my podcast. Second of all, like, I'm curious. And that's so funny because he just got to New York yesterday and I wasn't like, how was your flight? Or like, how are, how are you feeling? I immediately was like, what did you eat? That's like my first question. Yeah. But it's like almost invasive to him. Like, it feels like like I'm kind of invading his turf and like trying to, ma- he hates like the idea of like being managed or controlled, which I think it sounds like you probably run the same way too. Well, you know what? I think that I understand that that people who are on the side of the spectrum that tends towards more independence can benefit from having a partner or a friend or somebody in their life who pulls them more towards the side of joining and togetherness and, you know, and that's what Dean does for me. And I think that's what you do for Craig. Although I think it sounds like Craig resists it a lot. 
but like oh, yeah. thing of going to bed like i do try to go to bed not every single night of the week but i do make an effort to go to bed um on a with dean on a schedule which he always goes to bed like right around 11 and i find that it's better for me you know it's not necessarily great to be going to bed super late at random times and um well which was just like when i first met you like we're in the early stages of our relationship i i knew you to be like somebody that was up through most of the night and then slept through most of the yeah. day like you're almost like a nocturnal person i am and i have been that way even as a kid and so i really do think there's something to be said about like they say it's in people's dna is like are you a night person or a morning person maybe there's a bat in your family history that uh had sex with one of your relatives that's unpleasant to think about. <laughs> Maybe you're a bat woman. Um, well, Kristen, we're not at the very end yet. We have two more minutes, so <laughs> you're not off the hook. Uh, but so, so with that independent streak and that and Dean's like wanting to be connected, how does that manifest itself in food? Oh, um, well, I would definitely say like similar to what you were describing with Craig. Like uh, when we first started dating, like I, I don't, I think that Dean would kind of not not really like it if I would go out if I'd be out and about and I would just go and like get lunch like on my own you mm -hmm. know and not check in or not like not think to invite him or uh I I definitely like that would be my my natural tendency but mm -hmm. um there's a joining around food you know that I think is important and yeah. you know what on the flip side uh dean liked my influence on his relationship with his younger daughter who still lives in the house because when i started dating him and living in the house in my family we always sat down to eat like a formal dinner like you set the table mm -hmm. and you all sit together at the table and i think it was more casual when it was just dean and his daughter and they would maybe sit wherever but he did say that he did like uh, me bringing that influence into their mealtime routines. So that's, that's sort of the opposite of like what we were describing though. Cause that's, that's you sort of wanting to have that connection and that formal structure versus yeah, I being mean, a free agent. Oh yeah, no, it is important. Like, I think I recognize the value. I, I, I recognize the, like the downside of being too independent and, mm -hmm. um, you know, both of the, both sides of the spectrum have their downsides and their upsides. And well, this comes up for Craig and I literally all the time, you know, it's like, he says, he says separate creatures is what he'll often say to me. Like we're separate creatures. Like, you know, like, like we'll be at a party or something and I'll be like, I want to go home. He's like, I, well, I want to stay. And he's like, well, go home. And like, I'll take that personally. I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'll go home. But he's like, we're separate creatures. <laughs> like, right. you know, you can do what you want. And, and yeah. for me, it's sort of like him not caring that I want to leave but as I've gotten older or as our relationship has gone further along I've realized like oh I'm much more introverted in the sense that I lose energy around people and he's an extrovert in the sense that he gains so much energy so we could be yeah. at a party for like three hours and I, I, I will have like done a good job of like talking to everybody and like done the rounds and really been a good guest and then he'll still be like no 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 I'm not leaving you know so that's that's where our relationship you know what, if I were an actual therapist, which I'm not, I, you know, they should say what, what should be said to Craig. And this is what my, th the type of thing my therapist says to me that you can do with your partner. Who's like that. Like if for, well, this is what Craig should do is he should come to you at a party and say, um, you know, you preface it like, sweetie, I, I you know, I love you. I, I'm going to so look forward to seeing you to like snuggling in bed when I get home later tonight. But I really just feel like I want to stay at this party and like, give you a big kiss and say, but I, I won't be, I can't wait to see you later tonight at home. I'm you glad know? we ended on a hilarious note because that will never happen. That was a great <laughs> well, joke. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. I get, I get what you're Maybe saying. Though. I get it's, it's sort of like, when no, it's really, very like contrived. No, no, but I get what you're saying because it's sort of like saying, I see you, I recognize you. I, yeah. I, I'm not, I don't think your stance is absurd. I understand where you're coming from, but, yeah. I'm, but I'm coming from a different place. Because the person who wants to be joined, there's kind of a, there's a, an underlying anxiety or a fear about separation there. Mm -hmm. And if you give a little reassurance, you know, we're still connected, even though we're not going to physically be at the same place, we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're still connected, then it makes the separation 
um, much, much easier for the person who we're getting into attachment theory now, mm. the person who is more anxiously attached rather than avoidantly attached, which would be you and Craig and me and Dean. Um, What's avoidantly attached? Avoidantly attached is, so there's healthy attachment or secure attachment. Um, and then there's different kinds of insecure attachment, either anxiously attached or um, avoidantly attached. And avoidant is where uh, you, in order to protect yourself, you really like your default coping mechanism is independence and kind of reassuring yourself that like you don't really need to be connected to people, you'll be fine on your own, you can do things on your own, you're all right. Uh, and sort of not admitting to yourself that you kind of do need other people and you do need to be in, you know, social and, and anxiously attached is like your go-to coping mechanism is to want more closeness. So like more reassurance from your partner. Um, so kind of to be anxious about losing them and to go towards them rather than to be anxious about losing them and be like, well, I didn't really need them anyway. <laughs> mm, that's really interesting. Boy, you saved the good stuff for the end. And I disagree <laughs> that you're not a therapist. You're way more of a therapist than I am. So bravo. <laughs> well, Kristen, thank you so much for doing lunch therapy. Was it everything you wanted it to be? Oh, it was everything and more. Yay. Well, um, I'm hoping I get to see you soon. Yeah, I hope I get to see you see you soon too. You should come on up. The heat wave's over. All right. Well, maybe I will. All, All right, right, Kristen. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good day. Okay, thanks, Adam. Bye. Bye.